from the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Geek at Arms podcast with James, Mike, and Brian, recording a little bit later than we wanted to because, well, I'm going to take the blame for it. It's my fault. I got here a couple of weeks ago to record in studio, and I'm outside the door. I'm like, all right, I'm psyched. I'm ready to go. I was in the mindset to get recording, and I didn't have my badge to get in the building. And so I'm sitting out there, you know, in the sun. I've got my daughter with me because she came to just kind of sit with Dad and keep me company. And she's like, Daddy, is everything okay? I'm like, hold on, sweetie. And I'm like almost ripping the chairs out of my car. And just looking underneath it and also finding I need to clean underneath my chairs in my car. <laughs> You're a parent. Nobody does that anymore. No, well, you know, I think I need to because I put my hand in and I heard drums. <laughs> and something pushed back. So either it's gained sentience or a small society has begun with what has been dropped under the seats from my children, from the, scra- the scraps from my children. But uh, obviously the badge was not there. So we had to wash that day, but, you know, you guys were awesome. You guys are gracious. And my big worry was that, okay, if this is gone, it wasn't that I wasn't going to be able to get into work. I knew I'd be able to get into work. My big worry was if I have to get another security badge, are they going to charge me money to replace it? You know, my other worry is who has the original? Because somebody impersonating James, stealing your badge, stealing your identity, stealing your skin, and walking around as you is... <laughs> what terrifies me you have been listening to way too much night Vale, my friend <laughs> you don't know the half of it we'll wait till we get to the geek out section. fair enough but uh the next morning i got a call from uh one of my co-workers let me know hey cleaning crew found it apparently it just fell off of my pocket when i was like taking out my keys or my phone or something and uh they had it for me it was all good so lesson learned but this past friday as i left work i'm like no no it's there it is there i have it this is happening well, if you do happen to mislay your skin at some point, definitely let us know so we can be well, watching for that. Uh, Brian, I'm going to let you know because if it's gone at this point, I'm pretty sure Mike has it. I don't have it. I'm just <laughs> putting in bids on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least give Joy first dibs on it, okay? It was going to be a gift. Okay, fair enough. So now that we've moved past that uh, slightly unnecessary but also disturbing <laughs> admission of guilt, we're glad that you're all joining us for our second episode. All right, gentlemen, let's dive into this podcast. So which one of you two wants to start off with Geek Out and let us know what you've been geeking out to since we last chatted? Hi, you. Is that okay? Hit it. All right. I've had quite a lot going on in terms of the things that have been uh, occupying my life lately. Just before the original date that we had scheduled to do the recording, that night before, going out with some of my friends to go see the brand's new live show from Welcome to Night Vale, All Hail. Nice. And um, this, this was a fantastic show. It, Welcome to Night Vale always does a, a fantastic job with their live shows. And I feel duty-bound not to give any spoilers about this one, uh, or any of them. But uh, with the title being All Hail, I don't think that it's any surprise that all of the audience, all 1,200 of us, just wide-eyed, slack-jawed in awe and horror of the dread majesty that was the glow cloud. All hail. And uh, one of the things that makes Welcome to Night Vale just so magical in its uh, live show is, first of all, there is just that energy of the room where you have a thousand, five hundred, 
2,000, whatever your local venue is, of that energy of people who love Welcome to Night Vale and are just itching to see Cecil come out on that stage and as the rest of the cast come up there and, and do their thing, which is always spot on performance. And it gives it just such an energy and a light that is just absolutely amazing. I stand agog and aghast at the concept of sitting in a, I'm going to guess, a small like amphitheater or a stadium and watching all of this you know, unfold before me. You know, it really makes me wish I could have seen what it was like to do the old-timey radio. Because even though I've never experienced that, it makes me feel like this is how it must have been. As they're coming out and they're doing their scripts, they're vocally acting this out in front of you. Some of it is visual, but of course, you can't have an actual footed figure that is belching hornets at you during a during a live show. But it's the seeing the visual performance of what is also the imagined performance is just so magical. How big was the place? Well, it depends on your local show, but mine was in the Berkeley School of Music, their performance hall, and that was uh, 1,200 people-ish. Oh, wow. Cool. Now, just out of curiosity, was there anyone doing cosplay? Because that's a thing these days. That is a thing. Just about every time that I've gone, there has been somebody who has been cosplaying. This time, there was somebody actually who was cosplaying as the glow cloud. And they had a fantastic rig with uh, an umbrella that was very cottony, and it had just lights strung all through it, and they did a fantastic job with that. Last year, when I went to go see Ghost Stories, I sat on the train next to the Facebook old woman who secretly lived in your home. <laughs> how, how could you see her, though? You know, it's just one of those things that even though you try not to make eye contact with Facebook old women who secretly live in your home, when they're talking to their son, telling them, hey, look, see, that man dressed as Cecil. And I'm thinking, Melanie, this is how I dress to go to work, thanks. <laughs> you know what? You, you should have just said that when you went to PAX. You're like, oh, who are you cosplaying as? Oh, I'm Cecil from Night Vale. Well, it's funny because if you listen to his description of his own attire on the show, he's horrendously dressed. Despite the fact that the voice actor is just such a dapper, dapper man. But I've also got a lot of other things that are going on. I don't want to say too much about this because spoilers are a real thing. Have either of you guys seen the film Your Name? No, I have no. not. Holy cow. Do you know anything about the film Your Name? Never heard of it. As Brian and I are now jumping onto IMDb. Oh, yes. Do that. Uh, it is a film that uh, is an anime, and I will confess, I may have said some unfair things about anime in the past. I'm very selective about the anime that I enjoy, but this is an amazing film that crosses genres in ways that films really should aspire to do more often. Wait, yes, I have seen, I saw a trailer for this. No, the trailer is not. Is, it's not what? It's just, it doesn't do it justice? It, do you know what? It doesn't. It just, it even isn't. <laughs> <laughs> what it, wh whatever you think, it isn't. It just is. Yeah. It doesn't, well, isn't, and here's won't. here's the thing. Because I don't explain this to my children, because my, uh, my eldest daughter had seen the trailer. My youngest had not. And she said, I wanted to see the trailer. What did the trailer tell you? And from watching the trailer, it did not make me want to see the film. And I told her, the trailer was made by somebody who is in the same position 
as the people who made the trailer for The Princess Bride and didn't know what they had on their hands, and so they didn't <laughs> know how to sell it. Fair for enough. The Princess Bride, is it a comedy film? Is it an action film? Is it a love film? I don't know. It is all of the above. Right. This film has a lot of genres that are kind of crossing over each other. And I'll give you just a brief tagline that won't make you want to see the film, but trust me, you should. A guy and a girl dreaming each other's lives. And they get to know each other through their experiences of their context rather than meeting the people themselves. Huh. Hmm. And then the show goes wild. That is a concept that you would think of, that you would kind of expect to see in an anime. But I could see how they could take it to something silly and funny, like you would see in an anime meant for, like, young kids or something for, like, especially the preteen crowd. Or they could take it and make a very dynamic and mature storyline from it. They have a little bit of that for a lot of different crowds. Okay. I would say it's a good family film for preteens to adults. Cool. Was it dubbed or was it with subtitles? It was dubbed, but I really want to see it subtitled now. Although you do have to admit, on some of the animes out there, the whole like dubbed versus subtitled thing is several shows on several podcasts have done that battle. Sometimes there's a lot of really great voice acting, especially when it's dubbed to English. You know, it's funny. I don't really want to open up the battle with subbed versus dubbed because I think that uh, voice acting is its own art form. And I think that there's some validity of that. And I also really enjoy a subtitled film hearing the original voice actors. So uh, I think they both have their place. Agreed. Probably making it on both sides. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think you'll ever find me to be like on hardcore on one side or the other. Unless it's Kiki's delivery service. And which side of the fence are you on for that? Oh, like I'm really going to toss my hat in there in this forum. No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll, we'll duke it out in an internet forum. I will tell you this. We just exposed Michaela to her first Miyazaki films. Oh, which one? Her very first one that she saw was My Neighbor Totoro. Nice. Which I felt was absolutely appropriate. We had a double feature of that last summer in a theater near here. They had My Neighbor Totoro followed by Kiki's Delivery Service. Cool. We were like about halfway through it, and Michaela points like, "Daddy, who's that?" I'm like, "Oh, that's Totoro." And she's like, "He's my favorite." <laughs> <laughs> so it's one little moments of pride in your in your heart that you feel as a father. So of course we've got the list of like you know what are we going to show her next, and we watched a little bit in the name of the wind. Some of them we have to wait till much later, like Howl's Moving Castle. That's not going to be till uh, a couple more years. It's a matter of finding the right uh, time and the, for the right kid in their right context. Exactly. Howl's Moving Castle has some scary moments. Spirited away, definitely. And we're looking forward to when she and the boys are both old enough to say, here, watch this, and you're going to love them. Nothing like the opportunity that you have when you have your young girl who says, I want to see a princess movie. And you have the option of going to your video collection and saying, Princess Mononoke. She's a princess. That's legit. <laughs> A killer wolf princess still, but, you know, that fits. Wait another couple of years before that one. (laughs) You know, if your little princess can't spit blood, what good is she? I've been training her since she was three. True, it's been ketchup, but, you know, we have to start small. So back to the movie. Your name, you recommend? Absolutely, hands down, recommend. Cool. I probably won't be able to go see it in theater, but when it hits out on DVD, we'll probably take a look at it. 
it is actually subbed on DVD. Well, okay. And I'm thinking about making a purchase pretty soon. The last anime movie that we purchased, besides a couple of the Miyazaki movies, was Target was having a sale. And so we picked up a lot of them for like 10 bucks each. I went ahead and picked up like Rogue One on DVD Blu-ray combo because I was like back and forth, do I want to? You know, we're budgeting. I'm like, yeah, yes, I do. It's Star Wars. I am duty-bound to own this. Speaking of Star Wars, somebody has a new novel out. I saw that. Is it out yet? I would like to say this. I have broken up with Star Wars novels like four or five times. Like <laughs> Crystal Star, you know, we're on a break, Star Wars. Then somebody talked me into Shadows of the Empire. I'm like, okay, I'll give this a shot. But no, this is not working out Star Wars novels. But when it comes to Timothy Zahn and writing about Grand Admiral Thrawn, I'm willing to give this relationship another try. I am not disappointed. I've read a couple of reviews on it. And like you, I powered my way through, like, the Crystal Star, Dark Saber, and others like it. Okay, you've wounded me, but you've soothed the wound with the X-Wing series and Wraith Squadron and others like that. So, okay, you're keeping me in. And then there was the whole New Jedi Order with the Yuuzhan Vong and Chewie getting hit by a planet and Star Wars. It's not you. It's Well, I would say it's not you. It's me. But... It's you. It's totally you. It's totally you. And I have not... Well, I take that back. I did buy, I think about a year and a half ago, I bought a book that dealt with some of the characters from the Star Wars Rebels cartoon. And mm. because I've been loving that show. And it was kind of an early novel to show how two of the main characters first met. And it was a decent novel. I was very pleased by it. But other than that one time, I have not picked up a Star Wars novel, I think in this century. Yeah. I actually do not remember the last Star Wars novel that I bought. It has been so long ago. Uh, I picked a couple of here and there as I'm like, I have got absolutely nothing else to read because I am sitting in the middle of a mall in Bucharest, Romania, and I have very few English choices. I think that was the last time I bought a Star Wars novel. And at that point, I got to read something, and it's either a pamphlet that I just found underneath the bench I'm on, or it's this book. It was honestly between that and the vampire Lestat. And given that I was staying in Transylvania at the time, it was a tough call, but I hadn't read Interview <laughs> with a Vampire, so we went with the Star Wars novel. Just out of curiosity, what was the Star Wars novel? It was the first actual novel. Oh, so you lucked out. I did luck out. It wasn't bad. I thought they did a decent job. It didn't inspire me to keep going, but it did the job. Sometimes that's all you can ask. I would say that Timothy Zahn is doing the job. Thrawn is a less developed character in this book, which naturally because he's several years younger. I was a little bit disappointed because he starts off pretty awesome. Like he is still a master tactician at the beginning of the book. So I was thinking, so what are you going to do? I mean, we've got Superman now. What are you going to do? Just shoot bullets off of his chest until they find his kryptonite which is he is entirely unfamiliar with imperial politics. Oh, okay. And no spoilers from this point forward. So what do you think that Timothy Zahn thought after Disney bought Star Wars 
and they pretty much wiped the table clean of all of that lore, all of that history that the novels and the comic books and all of this expanded universe material was there. And it's just now it's gone. Now it's on the floor being swept up by a guy with a mouse sticker on his shirt. And they come to him years later says, hey, this genre-defining character that you made who helped restart interest back in Star Wars, period, not just the novels, but all of it as a whole, one, we want to put him in a cartoon. And side note, Thrawn ends up in a season of Star Wars Rebels, which was fantastic. But we're going to put him in a cartoon, but we also want you to rework his backstory and history and write us a novel about it. And go. You know, I'd love to be a fly on the wall during that conversation, uh, because if you read his Facebook and his Twitter, it was apparent that it took him a few days to really come to terms being okay with all of the previous work becoming legends. He did become okay with it, and he was very professional about his statement that he was okay with it, or became okay with it, but I would love to see how that discussion went down about who pitched what to whom about this wonderful backstory of this mysterious character who just wandered onto the stage and then was seeds were kind of planted throughout the expanded universe. But now to see the backstory after he meets the Empire and seeing his character develop, that had to be an interesting conversation. I imagine that the way they won him over was that he remembered that he likes money. <laughs> <laughs> Because you got to admit, a Disney paycheck is probably a pretty good paycheck. And to do something that you're obviously good at. True. And also to be able to dip your toes back into the water and to be able to, let's face it, before Disney bought them, Star Wars history, the timeline and the lore and the canon was fluid. <laughs> is that what we call a puddle of urine? Sorry, no, no, that, that was too harsh. But you had so many hands in the pot. You had video games from different studios. You had comic books from Dark Horse and Marvel. Well, eventually Marvel. You had early TV show. You had the Clone Wars TV show, even though that one was made to be official. And books, books galore by different authors, each with their own take on the universe. Some of it was good, some of it was fantastic, some of it was weird, but it is a galaxy far, far away, and some of it is not worth the paper and the ink it was printed on. I think we said Crystal Star earlier. Some of it is not even worth the power that is storing it somewhere on a cloud drive. So I had this talk with Joy about I am, of even though there's a lot of things that I miss from the old expanded universe characters, concepts, places, events. I do think as far as the future goes, just for in terms of clarity and streamlining, that a lot of this stuff did get wiped off the board. And now we have a core group of people, like I think that's their job at Lucasfilm now. It's a core group of people who it's their job to keep everything in line and everything that comes out all follows and fits in a progressive storyline. And you know what? If you liked the previous books that you had before in the Legends, guess what? They're still there on your bookshelf. Exactly. I still have the Thrawn trilogy on audiobook, and I will tell you, the narrator will read me a bedtime story at night as I fall asleep. <laughs> so it has been many years since I have picked up a Star Wars novel, 
but for the first time in a long time, I'm actually pulled toward Thrawn. Nice. I don't know if I'm going to get it in hardback, though. I kind of stopped getting hardbacks a long time ago because, one, I stopped having 30 bucks to shell out on one, and, two, I'm tired of having them on my bookshelf. Three, I'm tired of all of them ending up in a box in my attic. Yeah. Uh, I found a solution to the box in the attic one. Ebook. No, actually, after I read part of the Old Republic and I came to the phrase, he was not one who let a lowly thing like physics stand in his way. I snapped the book shut and it wound up on the curb. Fair enough. (laughs) Although there are a lot of hardback books of mine that ended up at Hooked on Books and other used bookstores. I'm going to give you this stack of books so you can give me credit so I can buy this one book. It's a form of recycling. Almost all of my books wound up at like a Goodwill thrift store. Your brother didn't abscond no. with them? Well, he didn't want to come all the way to California and then try and ship 300 pounds of books back to Wichita. Fair enough. Uh, but it got to the point I was moving an average of once a year, and books are really heavy. And I just got tired of moving them from apartment to apartment. So I uh, got ebooks of most of the things that I really wanted to keep hold of, donated everything else to the Goodwill. And I've got to say, Having only one smallish bookcase in my apartment is actually kind of relaxing. I mean, I liked my books. I like the smell of books. But Mm -hmm. being able to reduce three bookshelves to a four-inch by four-inch little hard drive server makes my life so much better. You know, I never was one for the whole ebook thing. They've been around for a while, and especially like the dedicated little tablets for them. But this is how much cooler my wife's work is than mine. (laughs) She works for a property development company that makes high-end apartment buildings that the three of us combined could not afford the rent on. And anytime they, like, finish an apartment and they sell it, then the people there get something cool. She's gotten a really cool uh, JBL Bluetooth speaker. Oh, my Um, gosh. She got a Amazon Dot, you know, the little voice recognition little thing named Mm -hmm. Alexa. Oh, yeah. So we've got one of those, which is actually kind of cool. I've got to walk out into the living room. Alexa, what's the weather for today? And she tells me in her nice dulcet tones. And so I'm like, Alexa, tell me a joke. And it's something horrible and cringeworthy, but still makes me laugh. Do you ever ask it, Alexa, am I beautiful? <laughs> and she's very complimentary. Very good. She always says that my shirt looks great and it matches my eyes. I did ask her one time, Alexa, are we in the Matrix? And it took her a second to think. Oh, that's when you get scared. <laughs> and when she came back, she says, I'm sorry, I can't comment on that. Oh, my. And my first thought was, oh, Amazon, someone at your company is very good. Well, find out exactly how good they are and ask her about Skynet. I might ask her about which should I take, the red pill or the blue pill. Ooh, report back <laughs> to us next time on that. Done. But the latest thing that Joy got from them was a Amazon Fire tablet. Nice. And I'm looking at this little thing, and I'm looking at it. gets books straight from Amazon there, but it also can watch Netflix and other things. And I'm like, okay, th- this is actually pretty cool. I was looking at the prices of them online. I'm like, and they're not that expensive. And I've always been like you, Brian. Love to have the visceral feeling, the physical book in my hand. Love the smell of the pages and being able to read it in that medium. But ever since she got that, I'm going to admit, the e-book reader's kind of starting to win me over. I don't really like to read a book on the fire because it's got that LED screen, Yep. which I find, for one thing, it runs the battery down really fast. 
but I just find the eye strain. The only thing I use my fire for is comic books. I mean, I love the digital comic books, not having to actually go to a comic book store and not having, you know, long boxes again because of space and weight. But the e-ink, e-readers, like I've got my Kindle that I got from an employer as a Christmas gift five years ago, and it's slim, it's lightweight, the battery lasts for two weeks, and I can carry a thousand books in my pocket. Nice. It's hard to argue with that. The only the nice only point. really problem with it is it's really difficult. Oh, hey, somebody said something 40 pages back, and I want to flip back to it. It's really hard to do that with the e-reader. That has been my main problem with leading Bible studies with a commentary on an e-book. Oh, um, yeah, that would be difficult. They just got Exodus in the Interpretation series, which is a hit-or-miss series, but it's a, it, for three bucks, there was no way for me to go wrong. It would at least be a $3 lesson learned if it's a poor commentary. <laughs> and when somebody asks a question that I don't know offhand, I usually look it up and we go from there. That is so hard to do on an ebook, especially because you can't look at the top of the pages and gauge how mm-hmm. close you are to the particular passage that you want to be looking up. Now, would a Dake Bible require a much bigger tablet and a big memory card? <laughs> well, the Pew e-readers are smaller than, you know, say the platform church e-reader. So you have, if you have the church Bible on an e-reader, it's got to be thick, it's got to be black, and somebody has to take the time to paint gold trim on it. That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> and somehow still gold enamel your initials or your name on the front of it. That's really the challenge. It's a similar challenge to when I've had my favorite authors sign my ebooks. <laughs> I want to see you go to a convention with a copy of Thrawn on an ebook and present him a sharpie and your tablet and say, <laughs> "Would you please sign this?" <laughs> There has got to be some way to do a magic trick to pull that off, to make it look like somebody has signed your ebook, and then you could turn the page only to have what they did with the Sharpie appear to disappear. <laughs> There's somebody who has that sleight of hand skill. It's not me. No, I would ruin my ebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about you, Brian? What have you been geeking out to, my friend? Well, the last few weeks, I have been uh, kind of buried in cyberpunk. Mm. It wasn't deliberate. I started out, a friend of mine recommended a book called Influx by Daniel Suarez, which is not right in the center of the cyberpunk genre, but it's got some elements to it. And then, as I mentioned in the last episode, I was looking forward to Ghost in the Shell, which I did eventually go see. And they put the entire Deus Ex collection on a Steam sale. So I was like, oh, I was planning to buy those one at a time at $20 each, but you're going to give me the whole thing for 15 bucks? Okay. Nice. So I twist my arm. I've been playing uh, Deus Ex Mankind Divided for two weeks. And when I realized, you know what, I've got an awful lot of cyberpunk going on here, I decided I'll just go whole hog into this. And I read The Star's My Destination by Alfred Bester. Eh, it's okay. And Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip yeah. K. Dick. Oh, wow. Well, now I love Blade Runner. It's it's one of my favorite movies, and I've always intended to go back and read the source material and, and read the dick. And I got to say, he's a horrible writer. <laughs> I mean, and I, I knew I was going to talk about this, so I, I prepared a uh, where'd it go? A bulletproof. See, he ascend well, <laughs> well that and but I looked up a passage here. 
He ascended, clad for venturing out, including his Ajax model mountebank lead codpiece, to the covered roof pasture, <laughs> whereon, whereon, his electric sheep grazed, whereon, again, it, sophisticated piece of hardware that it was, chomped away in simulated contentment, bamboozling the other tenant of the building. This is just a sample of Philip K. Dick's prose, and it's, the whole book is like this. It's like, he's got these weird sentences with unusual words just kind of piled on top of each other and he never really lets you get a chance to really untangle what he's talking about before he throws another one of these byzantine sentences on you it's like i know he's the founder of the cyberpunk well he's not really the founder of the cyberpunk genre and i think that probably goes to william gibson but he's an important author in this genre but you know it was, and it was I, I did finish the whole book but i didn't really enjoy it <laughs> See, it's funny because I was just about ready to fire back here until I have to say that that is a poorly written sentence. And yeah, you, you've kind of disarmed me here. I mean, I, yeah. I think that he had some wonderful things going on conceptually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, although uh, there was a this obsession with owning animals, which the, the book is not really about hunting down androids. It's about, hey, how can I buy a goat? <laughs> it's about empathy. Yeah, it is. I mean, and that's the underlying thing with all of these apparently disconnected technologies that is going on. Is they're all they are all about empathy and no, caring I, for the people around you and the things around you. I feel but, like another name for this novel could have been Animal Husbandry, Wi-Fi, and You. Yes. You forgot the radioactive <laughs> dust. Oh yeah, and that was the the cause, of course, for him wanting to buy the goat. That's the so I will admit I and have the reason not, that he's wearing a lead codpiece also. Yeah, I have not read this book, but now I feel I need to so that Mike, have you read it? Oh yeah. Okay, I feel that the three of us need to so that we can suffer and stand in abject mild confusion together. See, I really enjoyed <laughs> the novel, especially because I was reading a work on clinical treatment of schizophrenics that was written in the same time that Dick was writing. And so there were some very interesting parallels in terms of transference and empathy and what Dick was saying about schizophrenia, albeit very yeah, briefly. I can see that. Okay, yeah. And so it was kind of a wonderful match of the things that I was reading at the time. The ideas are wonderful, and I I liked a lot about it, but the prose, it was difficult to slog through. <laughs> I am and, I, I cannot argue with you there. Yeah, and the science fiction from the 50s through the 70s kind of all had this hurried sort of, of prose to it. You read Asimov, and it's, it's clipped, and it's not very descriptive. And he took that and added, I don't even know, it's like uh, the most weird parts of Alexandre Dumas and sprinkle that over the top. <laughs> who himself know. is, you know, Poe, I don't know. Who, Dumas himself, who of course has never been accused of being too verbose. <laughs> never. It's I, like, take out all of the, the ordinary words that Dumas was using. Of course he was in French, not in English, but the translators used mm -hmm. and just condense all of the strange words really close together. And you've got Philip K. Dick. That gives me a headache just thinking about it. See, it's funny because I was so, this probably says something about me as a reader, but I was so engaged in the concept that I didn't dwell too much on, is this actually written well? I mean, I'm actually going gonna, gonna to revisit this, especially before this summer, for reasons we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Right.
But, yeah, I, I'm going to take a little look at that and approach the pros a bit more analytically. I'm sorry. I'm stuck right now on what The Three Musketeers would have read like if it had been written by Dick. See, I'm concentrating on what The Three Musketeers would have been like if they were wearing lead cod pieces. Oh, they were in the <laughs> – well, check out the 2011 movie that came out because I'm pretty sure most of them were. Well, you know, actually, now that I think about it, I think I had Dumas on my mind because I mentioned The Star is My Destination earlier, Alfred Bester, which was in large part a retelling of The Count of Monte Cristo. So I think I already had Dumas in my head for some reason when I made that comparison. Not an unjust one. Anyway, I, so I decided to try and watch Blade Runner again. I don't own a copy of it. It kind of went out with everything else that I threw out. But I figured, oh, you know, I'll be able to buy it streaming on Amazon. You cannot get that movie on Amazon right now, which I, I think is really strange. In a bargain bin at the grocery store. How much? <laughs> like five bucks? Like seven bucks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I need and, to run over to uh, the local uh, used DVD place and pick up a copy. The thing is, with the number of versions of that film that they have out there, five people can go and buy a DVD, sit down and watch it, and none of them have seen the same film. <laughs> I mean, they have the director's cut, then they have an extended cut, uh, they have the theatrical cut. I understand that this movie's been cut several times. Not nearly as many as a Metropolis, but still. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah, and none of them are available on Amazon. Watch. I was aiming at the, the one called The Final Cut, because I've seen the theatrical version, and I've seen the director's cut, but I haven't seen this new, most recent cut that they did. Now, what are your thoughts about the upcoming Blade Runner 2? I think this takes us into the future. Yeah. Um, as, as in our segment, into the future. Right. <laughs> so I don't get a chance to geek out? Well, oh, yeah, that's I mean, the question. Do. Let's hold on that question. We'll come back to it in a little while. Exactly. Done and done. So I will get through my segment then. Uh, yes, what are you geeking out about? Well, once again, my geek out is twofold. As I stated in the last show, I was looking forward to the new Mass Effect Andromeda. Now, I have Mass Effect Andromeda, and although I alluded to the fact that I would be eating, breathing, and drinking this game, my wife did remind me that I am a parent and a somewhat responsible adult, so it's been less of like 10 hours a day playing it and more like an hour or two every two to three nights. Oh, you're never going to explore the game at that level. <laughs> you know, I've gotten through what I would consider to be the opening act. And one of the themes that they focus on is colonization. This big arc filled with uh, several thousand humans has traveled to the Andromeda Galaxy, to this area that there's supposed to be uh, a cluster of golden worlds. Think in Star Trek terms, like a bunch of Class M planets that are perfect for human settlement. We can just we show up and we can land right on them, and life will be great. Boom, instant federation. Well, of course, it wouldn't be that fun of a video game if that's what it was. It wouldn't be a Mass Effect game. It would just be another edition of Civilization. So... <laughs> The ship gets there, and nothing is the way it's supposed to be. And I like their explanation, is because it took them 600 years, and they were in cryogenic sleep, for them to be able to travel from our galaxy to the next one. And all of the data that they had was from light that had reached our galaxy from this one, and that information would have been very, very old by the time they finally got there. Things are bad. So you, as the human pathfinder, have to go and find out why things have gone bad, or you're going to these worlds to try to make them better. 
and one of the first worlds you land on already had a couple of human settlements that had tried to make it work, and they both failed. And so it's an interesting concept. You're there to try to make things work. In fact, one of the side missions is trying to find out what happened to some of these people and where they died. And so you can at least inform their family on the big human ship. You can let them know, hey, here's what happened to them. And and try to bring the viability of the planet up to human livable conditions. And the more you do this, the more planets you go to, and you go to more planets as the plot progresses, and the more you bring their viability number up, the more people on this huge human arc you can bring out of cryogenic stasis. Nice. So you start off, and like I've just got this one planet that I brought up to viable status. You know, you, you go to the subject of main plot line versus like side missions. I've been doing a ton of side missions on this planet just because I've been having fun and familiarizing myself with the game, and I've kind of forgotten about the main mission, and so... People can come down to this planet when it gets to like 70% and you can bring a settlement down and you can choose. Is it going to be a scientific research station? Is it going to be more like a military fort? And you choose all these things. The higher that you get a planet's viability status, the more people you can bring out of cryogenic sleep. And I finally took a look. I'm like, oh, I have this planet at 100%. I should really get going with this game. <laughs> I should really figure out like where it's going. Like I'm on this planet, everything's golden. The rest of the of the little galaxy burning, as the unknown or unnameable alien menace finds that it has free reign because the hero is stuck on a little desert planet farming. Wow! See, I know, ju- this wow! I just stole Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh! I just realized that man. I am so getting sued. Um, and I have enjoyed it. It's a different feel than the first Mass Effect games. The first Mass Effect games, you were this highly trained special operations soldier with a core group of people to help you. And I feel like there was a more linear plot line. And this one feels way more open exploration. You don't know the half of it. Now, I haven't even played this game. I'll own that. But while I was at PAX, I sat down to pull out my dinner from my backpack and sat next to a lady wearing an N7 hoodie. I'm like, okay, fine. Side note, I have that same hoodie. Do you? It is so many conversation starters. There have been restaurants and stores I've gone to wearing my N7 hoodie that Joy gave me. And I'll get better service because the person working there sees my hoodie, recognizes it, tells me they like it, and suddenly I get extra stuff or I get a discount. Nice. I did not get a discount with my dinner because it was in my backpack. And I didn't think much of it because, you know, I heard a video game conference and drama is coming out. But as I'm talking to this person that I'm just kind of lounging around with, she turns out to be one of the devs on the game. Oh, that is awesome. And she said she had been playtesting it for months. So this is her job. This is her office job to play this game inside and out. And she said after months and months, she still had discovered a storyline that she didn't know had been written into the game. And if that's her job that she's been doing it for months, I figure that if this podcast is still going by early 2019, I'll still be playing it. I don't doubt that. James, have you finished the main storyline? No, no. I just got my third planet up to 100% viability. Have you started the main storyline? I think. But I'll beat it easily because I've got all my characters to level 100. (laughs) But it's been a fun game. I've enjoyed the new dynamic of it. It's just familiar enough 
to the original trilogy that it felt like I was putting on an old jacket, but it was a new jacket, but it felt like it still had the old lining in it. Nice. So it was old, it was comfortable, but it looked good. And one thing I will say about it, and you'll see these reviews online, the graphics, beautiful, the pictures of the galaxy, the galactic map, and the planets and everything. Some of these things are concepts and uh, pictures that NASA helped out with. So, of course, it's gorgeous. The aliens look great, as they always do. The humans, uh, let me put it this way. About a week and a half ago, they had to release a patch to try to make the humans look a little more human-y. I wish they'd have that patch in real life. <laughs> Are you kidding? I've got a few people I'd like to apply that to. Walmarts across the U.S. would suddenly have loading errors and <laughs> wait times of people going in and then freezing. If that was a mean thing to say about Walmart, I can do that because I used to work there for years. We know. I we don't know. think that protects you from a lawsuit, though. <laughs> no, but it doesn't protect him from looking like one of them either. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. <laughs> so, yeah, Mass Effect has been fun. And for anyone who is looking to get it on Xbox One, PS4, PC, or sometime in the future, I say go ahead and grab it. The other thing that I have been geeking out to recently is that for the first time in a while, I actually got to go to an SCA event. I actually got to go to an SCA fighter practice. Nice. And I actually ran a rapier tournament. Cool. How'd it go? It was a lot of fun. A couple of weeks ago, I finally got to go to my first fighter practice in a couple of months. I had the evening off of work, got okay with the family. So I just grabbed my equipment, went out, geared up. I'm not going to make one comment about my performance that night. The less said, the better. Hey, you're knocking the rust off. That happens. Did you take your longsword? I did, but I did not fight with it yet because I still have one vital piece of protective equipment that I need to create. Ham? Um, back of the head? Back of the head, exactly. The head. Lead cod piece? Lead cod piece. No, no, that's a given these days. Now that's a requirement <laughs> in the SCA. But Oh, you could do a good leather lobster tail to cut that fits onto the back of your three-weapon map. Well, I had a friend show me a great idea that is cheap and easy to do, which passes all the safety regulations, and that is modifying a plastic hard hat from the hardware store. I've done that already. It's worked pretty well. And I've got a drape that's sewed onto the back of my mask, so it'll be hidden completely. And I just have to line the inside of the hard hat with, I think, like a quarter-inch foam. Yeah, I used yoga mat couple layers of it. Yeah, same diff. Use some double-sided duct tape to affix it in there, attach that under the strap, and we're good to go. The only other thing I'm thinking about doing, I've got a pair of hard shell elbows, which are required, but I'm also thinking about picking up a pair of hard shell under-the-pant knees. Yeah, leg shots are not particularly efficient. I mean, they can be done. True, uh, but I don't want to be that one guy. The thing is, I've never fought cut and thrust without knee pads. Never. Now, granted, I use just hardware store carpenter's knee pads. Mm -hmm. But I want to make sure that all the joints are protected. And that's my thinking, too. Even in rapier, none of us take a shot to the knees. We don't aim for the knee. That's an uncool shot. You just don't do it. And if you hit it, that means your point control needs a lot of work. But accidents happen. And especially in cut and thrust, an accident, a hard cut... On the kneecap, that could stink. A long swords generate a lot of energy. And even if it isn't a long sword, if someone sneaks inside my guard, 
they're going to have to rush hard. They have a shorter blade, and if they're already rushing and they're swinging that sword and it catches my knee, that's going to hurt too. I've got ice on my kneecap just thinking about that. <laughs> so I've got the back of the head. It's one of those things where the only thing why I don't have it yet is because I keep forgetting to go by Lowe's or Home Depot on the way home from work. And so I'll have that done hopefully in the next week. And the knees I'll get as I go. But then I just got to find someone to fight with because the number of people in our local group who can fight cut and thrust and are authorized and have the equipment are unfortunately few and far between. That got in my way. So it'll get there eventually. It's spreading more and more. I mean, it's gotten me to try it out. But uh, I just fought normal rapier and it was fun. Was my performance where I wanted it to be? Absolutely not. But, you know, I did kind of give myself a little bit of an excuse in that I could count the number of fighter practices I've been to in the past six months on one hand. Especially after you lost those two fingers in that duel. Well, no, no, that's because the king uh, found me poaching deer in his woods. That's always a thing. Yes. So that was a lot of fun. And I'm hoping that maybe with getting an occasional night off from work, what happens is that I run a show in the evenings at this radio network I work at. But sometimes that show is on tape. And if that happens, I get the evening off. I just have to wait for them to send the show in. I put it in the automated system, and I'm out. Sometimes that happens on a Wednesday night. I'm thinking, hey, maybe I'll get lucky, and maybe at least once a month I'll get to go to a fighter practice. I know that sounds like a very small amount of time, but at this point, I'll take what I can get. Better than not doing it at all. Exactly. But I did get to run a rapier tournament. It was a little tournament called Defender of the Flame and uh, in one of the smaller cantons in the area. And it's a small group, but a fun, fun group, uh, a group called the Canton of Glaslin, which is the Denton area uh, just north of Dallas. And we had a ball. I wasn't the outgoing champion, but the lady who is kind of like my fencing teacher in the SCA, one of the highest ranks you can get in the society is to be a white scarf. A Don or a Donya is the title. And uh, this wonderful lady is my Donya, and she's the current champion, but she also has a job with the crown. And uh, the king and queen were going to be at an event down south in San Antonio. She had to go with them, and so she asked me as her student if I would run it for her. I said, absolutely, because the year before, I was the champion, so they know me. They're a fun bunch. And so I did a repeat of what I did the year before, which everyone had a lot of fun, and it was a luck-of-the-draw Swiss Five. A Swiss Five, there's different weapon styles in rapier combat, but also in the chivalric form of combat in the SCA. And there is a single-point rapier, sword and dagger, sword and buckler, sword and cloak, and then a case of rapiers, two rapiers, one in each hand. And a standard Swiss Five tournament will have each person going through five rounds and fighting their opponent with each weapon style once. Once you've used it, you don't use it again. And it's meant to make sure that each fighter is proficient in all forms of combat. Now, in the luck of the draw Swiss Five I did was that I had a bunch of playing cards made that on one side was a cool pair of cross swords. The other side, I had a different picture from different treatises of rapier works from uh, Degrassi, from Meyer, Capofero, and Fabris. And my idea had been I was just going to print them onto paper and cut it out. But this lovely lady named Emma, who lives down in Austin, who is a fantastic artist, I was consulting her on the best way to print it out. Do I take it to Kinko's and have them printed on thick cardstock? And she had me send her the pictures of the illustrations I was going to use, and she drew them up by hand for me. No. 
it gets better on this beautiful cardstock. She put like some little gold coloring, and on some of these illustrations and some of the masters, they are in a state of undress. Of and, course, of course. Well, the main purpose was so that you could see how the person's muscles and the joints were turned when doing a, a certain tack, strike, or block, and that's that makes perfect sense. But she did me the courtesy of putting pants on some of these figures. <laughs> oh, what's the fun of pants? I mean, at least Capafaro had conveniently placed ribbons. She, she's also very much into fashion, so she put a nice pair of pants and a doublet on one and, you know, a jerkin on another, and it just looked fantastic. There is nothing more fashionable than a floral arrangement on your junk. <laughs> <laughs> That's when the podcast came to a grinding halt. <laughs> Uh, if we ever get featured on anything, uh, like, there's a new podcast out. That's going to be the sound bite <laughs> that makes it on there. <laughs> Moving right Moving along. Moving right along. And she had made these cards for me last year when we had a blast with them because I had two cards of each weapon style, and then I had two more cards made with a crown on each one, and that was royalty's choice. Last year we had the queen, and if you drew it, then the queen chose your weapon style for you. This year, the queen was down south, but we had the baroness of the local group, and she was there and watching, and so it got to be her choice. And sometimes she'd be nice, like your opponent drew a sword and dagger, and you drew the crown card. She'd say, oh, sword and dagger for you, too. Other times, she would just be downright fun. Like, two people last year drew the crown's choice card, and she decided to make a rapier version of a Viking game she saw online. Uh, long story short, we found a box. They each had to be holding the box with their fists, and in the other hand was a dagger. Oh my, they that got messy, didn't it? They could not let go of the box. They had to keep in physical contact with the box while trying to kill their opponent. <gasps> and stabs on their other opponent's arm, which was holding the box, did not count. <sighs> I tell you what, those two fighters were really wishing they had upped their cardio before <laughs> they fought that it. bout. <laughs> But it was so much fun to watch. I was just as thankful that I wasn't the one having to do it. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. And so we brought that back this year. It turned out to be April in Texas is usually, it's warm, but not too bad. I think the high was 64. That's nice. Most people there were like freezing. They had cloaks on and blankets over the cloaks. And I'm standing there and I'm like, what is wrong with y'all? And they're like, how are you not freezing? I lived seven years in Colorado. I'm a happy boy right now. I was going to say, you get a 64-day in April in New England, and you think that you won the lottery. Now, the one <laughs> thing that was making it bad was a pretty cold wind chill. Okay, That kept fair. blowing, and that is fair to most people. And You get 64 I, degrees here, and everybody's wearing fur hats and parkas. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was a beautiful day. It was a lot of fun. Because of the weather and because a lot of people were down south, we had a limited number of rapier fighters. But still, everyone had a lot of fighting, had a lot of fun. There was a lot of laughter, a lot of enjoyment, and a good time for all. That and sounds nice. For one of the rounds, we had another pair of fighters who, against different people, not against each other, who had drawn Baroness's choice, Royal's choice. And I decided to kind of up the silly factor and just to see if she would want to mess with them. And she did. She decided they had to fight... One hand rapier, one hand offhand parry, and for the parrying device used to block the sword was, I should preface this with that, Joy, and my two little boys were there. Michaela was off visiting grandparents in Kansas. Oh, this could only get 
good. And so I had borrowed from one of my sons a small, jingly <laughs> little toy dog. Nice. Uh, with all sorts of things on it for babies to grasp and twist and teeth. And so these two fighters had to fight rapier and offhand child doggy chew toy thing. Release the hounds, indeed. <laughs> yes. Actually, I think one of the fighters said that exact same thing. <laughs> he was a guy called Edward of the Forest, and I think you and he, Mike, would get along like a house on fire. Well, yeah, we'll see how that happens. So they both played it up well. Laughs were had. They didn't just go out there and just like, oh, gave me a stupid kid's toy. This is a joke. No, they had fun with it. And that's what you hope to see. And I was just happy to get back out there, even though I wasn't fighting in it. Even though I wasn't the champion, the people in charge of the event said, hey, you know, even though you're doing it for her, you can still fight in it. I said, no, that wouldn't be right. She trusted me to run this tourney. And for me to fight an attorney that I am running, that's kind of gauche. Also a good way to save face while you're knocking the rust off. Exactly. See, the last time I went into a tournament like that, knowing that, well, I, I can't care about winning. Like I was just in a position, just the frame of mind I was that day, I can't care about this. I decided to up the silly factor, so I went double buckler. <laughs> we laugh, but how long did it take someone to kill you? I won the tourney. Side note for our listeners who are unfamiliar with SCA combat, smacking someone with a buckler is not allowed. Oh, no. No, no, no. I had a Magic the Gathering deck like that once. It was about 300 cards. The point was to run my opponent out of cards. It was nothing but circles of protections and counterspells. Wait, People I... in my Magic group didn't like me very much. Oh, I imagine not. I think you <laughs> used that deck on me. <laughs> if my tone of voice sounds harsh, there's a reason for that. No, because a match lasts about two hours. <laughs> oh, that's why I quit playing Magic. Yeah, I remember. We were at June's house, and I was getting angrier and angrier. <laughs> I think after the one-hour mark, I realized where it was going, and I just conceded so we could get on with the night. <laughs> right. I'll concede, but you have to play a different deck. <laughs> oh. So I like how my geek out has been like on opposite ends of the spectrum. Science fiction, space exploration video game, and medieval combat rapier tournament. Well, we try to run the gamut here. That we do. So I believe someone had something about to the future that they were really looking forward to. So shall we uh, head to the future? I think that both Brian and I are going to the same place in the future. <laughs> and I don't mean osteoporosis and heart disease. I think I'm talking about Blade Runner. Cool. Absolutely. Since Blade Runner is coming out, I think sometime this year, how about we treat this to the future as, let's give it a theme. We're just on the cusp of the summer movie, blockbuster movie season. So let's talk about what movies are coming out in the next few months, or even the rest of this year, that we're all really looking forward to. Like maybe do three each. What do you think? You know what? Yeah. And even if we have overlap on each other's, I'm game with that. Absolutely. So Brian, do you want to start us off here? I'll start. The one that's got me the most intrigued uh, this summer is uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Oh, yes. yes. For those who aren't aware, this is uh, Luc Besson's new film, and he was the director of The Fifth Element. And he's, of course, done things since then. Um, but this is really hearkening back to this is just going to be a wacky, over-the-top science fiction movie. And 
I don't know if it's going to be successful. Maybe it's going to be another Jupiter ascending or whatever, but I'm really, really looking forward to it and just hoping for the best because the fifth element is just fantastic. And of course, it wasn't appreciated in its time. Maybe this will be the same way. I guess we'll see. The fifth element is one of those movies. The fifth element is one of those movies that if Joy and I can't think of anything else to watch, can't find anything else to watch, and we're just in a veg mode to sit on the couch and watch something, The Fifth Element is like our go-to show. Yeah, it's kind of surprising because my wife wasn't that much of a sci-fi buff when we first met, but she said, you've got to watch this film. And we sat down and watched The Fifth Element, and it was just an amazing combination of zany flavor and sci-fi goodness with old-school mythic themes that it was just a great fun movie and really honestly that the fifth element is one of the reasons why i'm also looking forward to the film as well i i had it lined up in my order to watch valerian in the city of a thousand planets i saw the trailer i'm not familiar with the source material but just seeing Luke Besson's flavor in it, it really makes you want to go to the source material and read up before this thing hits the theaters. Or, you know, maybe I should just go into the movie blind and appreciate it for what it is, because Luke Besson has done such a wonderful job visually in the past, and we know that he can do good work. He's done several French films and French uh, TV shows that have all gone well, um, I, I'm, I'm also looking forward to this film. All right, following on that, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yes. Uh, I was not sure what to think of the first one when I was seeing trailers. I'm like, really? These are really obscure and minor characters, and this looks like a... I still had the bad aftertaste from uh, Green Lantern. It's like, oh, another comic book space movie. But it surprised me so much. And the CG characters, Rocket was not just present in the scene, not just, you know, oh, unbelievable, but he was actually out-acting the other actors. Um, You're making me kick grass! <laughs> and I was so surprised by how much I loved that movie that I'm I'm really looking forward to the, the second installment. I'm not real wild about the Groot design. I don't think he quite looks like... He looks a little too CG to me. A little uh, micro-Groot. Yeah, the sapling. The Grootling. Yeah, but who knows? Maybe they've improved it from uh, the trailers. They sometimes do that. Maybe those could be early renders. You know, it's uh, also I'm kind of really funny. really looking forward. It's, it's really kind of funny because I find myself in a similar position like, oh, yeah, it looks a little too CG. But now that I think about it, I never went back and thought, wow, that rubber puppet looks a little too rubber puppety. But we have oh, that. Oh, I think that thing. all the time. <laughs> well. <laughs> But we have that criticism when we have these digitally rendered characters. Like, we've been exposed to enough of the perfect blend of CG and visual effects and on-screen practical effects that we want to see that perfect marriage all the time. We touched on this a little bit on our last podcast. How long is it going to be until we do have that perfect union of digital characters and real backgrounds or real people? It's getting better and better all the time. And it's going to happen one day. And when it does, I think we're not even really going to notice. Because by mm -hmm. that point, we'll have seen it so many times. So many shows like Guardians of the Galaxy 2. They're going to have it in other movies as well. Maybe they'll do another Tron movie. And it's going to be just commonplace. 
we may think, oh, if that's a digital character, they did a really good job, and then we're going to move on. Yeah. Well, and I don't mind a digital character that looks like a digital character, but the trouble is when you've got Groot looking very CG, very digitally generated, standing right next to Rocket, who looks perfect, you would believe that they've got a raccoon on the set. We didn't they? I think that contrast is potentially troublesome. But, you know, if the story is good, if the dialogue is, is as snappy as it was the first time, I'm not going to care. It's going to fall to the back of my mind, and I'll just enjoy the ride. Moving on to the third one. Uh, there's a smaller movie that, as I was looking forward through what's coming out this year, there's one called The Space Between, which is, it looks like it's going to be a coming-of-age and love story about the first child who was born on Mars. Hmm. And he starts up this video chat relationship with a girl who's living on Earth, and she doesn't know where he is. She doesn't realize he's on Mars. And he decides, you know what, I want to meet this girl. And so he comes to Earth, and of course Mars has got uh, like 40% of Earth's gravity or something like that. So he's not adapted to living in a full 1G, and he's going to have health problems or whatever. But he still, she still doesn't really know this kid's from Mars that I've been talking to. And it's a story about them developing this relationship. And the science fiction of it looks like it's going to be very much in the background of the story, and it's really more about the relationship. And I like those quiet, unassuming pictures. Ex Machina was wonderful, and it wasn't a big tentpole. It was still science fiction, but it wasn't relying on the spectacle. And I think we need to see a lot more of those. So I'm looking forward to the space between. Cool. Well, Brian, I will go next because we actually just lost Mike. Uh, he had a real-life situation pop up at his place and needed the phone line. So I'll tell you what we'll do to post his three on Facebook, and we can compare notes later. Although I have a s sneaking suspicion between you, me, and him, we're probably going to have a lot of overlap in our decisions. <laughs> Quite likely. So, well, I avoided Blade Runner deliberately because he'd already talked about wanting to see it, so I knew true. he was going to talk about it. So we know he has that one. Blade Runner 2049, I think, is the official title. Uh, yes, I believe so. Which, now that we're sitting in 2017, 2049 doesn't seem as far off as it used to. <laughs> so for my three, a pair of them are ones that you've already discussed. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is the first one. Like you, I went to go see it. I went to go see it because I was mildly curious. I knew that it had been a Marvel comic book for a while, which I knew nothing about. I knew it had a anthropomorphic raccoon, and I knew that it had a tree being and a dude in a metal mask. That was it. That's all I knew. And also a blue guy with a humongous fin on the top of his head. And that's all I had seen from, like, comic book covers, posters, and the trailer, it made me curious and so one night, I had been working late, really wasn't tired yet, and so I went to a midnight showing of it, and I walked out, and if they had had, like, a 2 a.m. showing, I would have turned right back around and gone in to watch it a second <laughs> time. For me, one of the most important things is whether or not the beginning of a movie can catch me, can draw me in. I still think one of the strongest openings of any, like, science fiction action movie I've ever seen was the 2009 Star Trek. Uh, where yes. that opening act was you see the USS Kelvin and you see the giant Romulan ship come out of the black hole and it's all set to the backdrop of 
James Kirk being born amongst all of this tragedy and this catastrophe. And it was so well done. It just had me pulled in hook, line, and sinker. I enjoyed it so much. Actually, we saw that movie together back in Denver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the time we went to the entirely wrong theater on the wrong side of town. I know, but we still made it. Somehow, I, we still made it to the theater for the opening. But it was wonderful. And with Guardians of the Galaxy number one, you see the first scene with the kid and his mom. And it, you can tell it's like mid-1980s. He's got his Walkman and just the clothes and everything else, the fuzzy headphones. And then it transfers from that to the planet. You see the spaceship coming down. It's a barren, desolate landscape. You just see this figure in a coat with a metal helmet with red glowing eyes and it has a very ominous and mysterious feel to it and the music that goes along with it is adds to that that soundtrack well and then he goes in you know the helmet comes off he puts on the headphones and and come and get your love starts playing i'm like i'm in i'm in i'm with this movie all the way you have got me and i just had the biggest smile on my face because it was just so well done and the rest of the movie did not disappoint. Like the raccoon, like you said, not only did they do a great job creating this thing, but Bradley Cooper did a great job voicing it. When I read that Bradley Cooper was the actor who voiced Rocket, I was like, no, it wasn't. It didn't sound anything like him, but that's how good he did. And Chris Pratt, Zoe Zaldana, whenever you read that a wrestler is going to be acting a part in a big movie, you're thinking like, ugh. This is... Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and although Dwayne Johnson has done a great deal of making the reverse of that true, Dave Batista comes in, a wrestler that... The only reason I knew him as a wrestler is because every once in a while on some of like these science fiction websites I frequent, they'll have updates on wrestling. Apparently, to them, WWE wrestling is science fiction. So that's how I knew <laughs> who he was and that he was playing the character Drax. And he nailed it! It was fantastic. And so when I saw the trailer for this one, once again, the 80s soundtrack music playing in the background, it flowed very well. And so I'm really looking forward to it. And then not long after that, keeping along with comic book movies, is a movie that I honestly didn't think was going to get made. And that's Wonder Woman. Yeah. It surprises me that they, they're taking the risk on that one and that they had decided to take the risk on it even before Batman vs. Superman had gathered its reaction so mike is fond of saying something that he knows won't make you many friends i actually enjoyed batman versus superman you know i still haven't seen it it got such bad reviews and everybody poo-pooed on it so much i just uh, okay well are, are there moments where, just, are there moments which had me going eh they could have done better there absolutely are but I was also able to, I have this ability that if I want to see something and if it has redeeming value, I can kind of check my brain at the door to a degree and just enjoy it for what it is. And for this, even though it's a movie that had a lot of weight behind it, it's had a lot of history behind it. It's a matchup that people have been wanting to see on the screen for decades. And now they've done it and people are angry about it. And you could say that there was no way they were going to be able to do it to everyone's satisfaction because it's impossible to do so, but then Marvel did movies like The Avengers, and they proved that storylines can be done, which have large numbers mm-hmm. of superheroes, whether they're at odds or not. But And let's be honest, there has never been a good Superman movie. Well, Man of Steel was okay, but in terms of telling a good story and, and getting people to really like Superman, Christopher Reeve did a fine job, but they were really hokey movies. 
Superman has not yet come to the screen successfully, in my yeah, opinion. The, the Christopher Reeve movies are very much products of their time. Yes. Um, and they were fantastic. I think the current gentleman who is doing Superman, his name? Uh, Cavill? Uh, Henry Cavill. Actually, I'm I'm liking what he's doing. I think he's a good Superman. I, I like his look and his, his gravitas. Mm-hmm. My problems with Man of Steel were more along the lines of, okay, Superman's not going to steal clothes from poor people. Come no. on. <laughs> exactly. He's going to fly to Beverly Hills and going to use super speed to take something off the rack at Neiman Marcus. <laughs> not but, quite my point, but okay. But, but, but anyway, I liked Batman versus Superman. And one of the things I especially liked about it was the intro of Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, you know, when they heard that Gal Gardot was going to be playing Wonder Woman, they're like, oh, she's not going to be able to. No, I thought she did fantastic. Everybody right. I've talked to on that topic said that she was the high point of that entire movie. Oh, she, Wonder Woman made it worth seeing. She she was a breath of fresh air into that movie, especially the first time you see her kitted out as Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, yes. Things felt like they went up a notch. And this movie coming out in June, it's set during World War One, And from the trailer, it looks fantastic. I think the character of Steve Trevor coming to her island, once again played by Chris Pine, who was Captain Kirk in the new <laughs> Star Trek movies. I like him a lot. I liked him as Kirk. I like him as an actor. He's one of those guys who he can do serious very well, but then also he can kind of flip it into a moment of humor. And he does that well, and that's one thing I like about him. And he's got the chops for it. Some people may not agree. I personally do. He plays heavily in it as well, and she comes to the world of men and becomes involved in World War One. And of course, there's probably a lot more to it. I don't know much about Wonder Woman lore or her history. And yeah, it, from what I've seen in the trailer so far, it looks like they're adhering pretty closely to their current interpretation of Wonder Woman. Yeah. And she's had several changes over the years. She has. And a lot of those changes have been talked about, like, which one of these changes are we going to incorporate into a movie? And so many people have been attached to this. I thought it might get made a few years ago. At one point... Well, they were talking about that girl from How I Met Your Mother. I can't remember her name now. Colby Smulders? Yeah, as Wonder Woman Yeah, well, uh, a few years back. Where I was going was that at one point, Joss Whedon was confirmed to direct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was the same film. Okay, and I thought if anyone is going to be able to make a Wonder Woman movie, it's going to be Joss Whedon. Um, I would like to have seen that movie. I would have too. But there were some creative differences. I think they were having trouble hammering out a script. I don't know all of the story, but uh, that fell through. And he did the smart thing. He didn't try to slog through it. He realized, I'm not going to be able to do this justice. I'm going to step back. So whether or not they've got the right people, the trailer looked fantastic. Early reviews of it have been positive. So uh, we'll wait in June to see. I'm going to be hopefully optimistic. Uh, As am I. And along with that... The Hopeful Optimism is my third movie, which is Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Like I said earlier, love The Fifth Element. It's just one of my all-time favorites. And Luke Benson, once again, basing this off of a French comic book called Valerian and Loreline. And if nothing else, we're going to go see it just for a visual eye-pleaser. Just for the special effects eye candy that we know this is going to be. Mm-hmm. Which was the same reason that we went to go see Jupiter Ascending. 
no Oscars to be given in that movie whatsoever. But it was. But it sure was pretty. It was, sure was pretty. I enjoyed some of the artistic concepts that they took mm-hmm. with the technology and the culture, and so I was able to enjoy those aspects of the film, even while the plot itself was grinding along. <laughs> but I've got high hopes for Valerian. Even if we don't get another fifth element, it's still going to be fun. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are other movies that are coming out that I'll be curious about. But I have to limit how many movies I get to go see. One, just budget-wise. And two, because it's killer trying to find a babysitter these days. Joy and I kind of have to plan what movies we get to go see around when we know we've got family in town or we're visiting family who can watch the little ones and we actually get a night off. And there have been once or twice that Joy's parents were in town. We're watching all the kids like, go out, have fun. And we're like, do we go see a movie? It was in March and there was like nothing out. So we went to Dave and Buster's. Always a, a good choice. Had a decent dinner and we played a lot of shoot 'em up in Star Wars games, which is never a bad way to go. Well, okay. uh, now that we have our movies chosen and we know Mike for definite is Blade Runner. And we'll just assume Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets and oh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, so that way the three of us are three for three for that one. So <laughs> there's his list, which we have arbitrarily given him. He doesn't get a choice now. He has to go see those three movies and none others. Maybe we can get him to write a post on the blog or something. There you go. So that'll wrap up to the future, and I think that'll wrap it up for today's show. You know, It sounds like it. He, he's not around to do the zombie apocalypse plan of the week, which is a shame. But I do have a an idea I could throw out there. Oh, I want to hear this. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at my budget and for retirement in the far future. And, okay, what kinds of houses am I going to be able to afford? And I stumbled across a website selling underground bunkers and missile silos. And it turns out you can buy a Titan E missile silo for less than a million dollars, and you get something like, 12,000 square feet of underground space and blast-resistant doors and a huge cargo lift. Now, if there's a zombie apocalypse, that's where I want to be living. Underground, sealed environment, blast doors, and, you know, for $500,000, that's actually kind of reachable. The more and more I watch the news, I want to live in an underground missile silo now. And, you know... One of the ones that I was looking at is actually only about half an hour from where my sister lives, so I've even got family close by. Okay, all joking aside, I saw a special. A guy bought, like, from government auction, I don't know how, but he bought a missile silo, Mm -hmm. and took the camera crew through a tour of, like, here's how you drive in, here's where the command was. Of course, they've ripped out all the important material. Here's where the silo is. You don't get some actual missile. Exactly, yeah. What's that thing? Oh, that... Uh, well, we couldn't figure out how to get it out of the silo, so we classified <laughs> it as a large microwave. <laughs> That's why you're getting the deal. So, yeah, he showed us the shaft, and uh, they had, like, welded it closed. Then he took us to the living area, and he had, like, you walk in through the door, and it's like you're in a nice $230,000 home in a nice neighborhood somewhere. I mean, it's Except like— no windows. Well, no, he had put in natural lighting and landscapes. He had built these shadow boxes with a landscape behind it and lighting so that you looked out through this picture frame and you felt like you were looking out of a window. And he had a nice kitchen, living room, dining room, bedrooms, all this stuff. You'd never guess that it was inside of a missile silo. 
So no, that sounds legit. I would absolutely do that. And you know, with 18,000 square feet or 12,000 square feet or whatever, you can have a little community in there. You could. <clears throat> You'd really have to like the people who you're with, though. <laughs> now, I'm living in 300 square feet right now. You could fit a lot of these little apartments in there. <laughs> yeah, you could. Well, cool. All right, my friend, always good talking to you. And hopefully we will get back to record another one of these before too long. And we'll get Mike back with this as well. All right. All right. So from all of us at Geek at Arms, we want to thank you for listening. Be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.